Let's look to the Lord together in prayer now. Now, our Father, what we want to do is to focus our attention upon you, not upon ourselves. The Apostle Paul is being very open with us about his own emotional state in these chapters, trying to relate truth to wherever he is at in his own circumstances. That's what we do as well. We want to be able to take your word and relate it to whatever it is we face, and wherever it is, we find ourselves. Father, your word is what matters now. That's why we open up the Bibles and reflect upon what you've said. So, Father, now these minutes together are important, they're significant, as we take what's eternal and relate it to the things that we face that are also temporal. But what we want to do, Father, is to keep you central. So, Father, in these minutes to come, it's our prayer that once again you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing at the nurse's station at the hospital, and the hospitalist who speaks with a a broken accent of sorts, she is making her way down the hallway to go to a room. I join her along the way. She's limping. She's been on her feet a long time. She's trying to find the words in English to explain it, explain it well. It's very clear to me that this is a woman who's got an incredible heart for people. She's wearied. It's at the end of her day. But this is important. And it's what she says at the door that captures my attention. She looks at the people, the man, the woman, the woman standing at the man's bedside. Two words stand out. Good news. I'm not sure how much more they processed after that, to be honest with you. She used some medical terminology and the likes. And then she headed out the door, limping down the hallway. And as she made her way down the hallway, my thoughts went back to a passage of Scripture. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach Good news. Ben, Pam, and I were standing in Greece. It's October 2017. Rainy, our, our tour guide, has positioned us now on what is known historically as the Ignatian Way. Now, the Roman Empire established the Ignatian Way as the means by which military personnel would be able to move from east to west, back and forth with Rome as the focal point. The Apostle Paul recognized in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, and the fullness of time include the ways in which God would communicate the gospel, which would mean that Paul would use the Ignatian Way as a means by which he would be able to take the gospel from one setting to another. And there Rainey stands on one of the stones on the Ignatian Way. 
and tells us very briefly that this was a place where when victory was being proclaimed, a messenger would come down this road and shout out, good news. And my mind goes back again to that statement that Paul wrote, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The word gospel is the word by which we get the understanding, the phrase, good news. And now as Paul picks up where he left off in his writing to the Corinthian people, he looks out over these people, it's a Greek culture, but they've been conquered by the Romans. And so there's a Roman overlay of Greek culture, it's got to be understood I've wondered where Paul, who was a tent maker, positioned as he was to make a a living in various settings, whether in fact he was at times making tents for Roman soldiers who would be moving from one setting to another along the Ignatian Way, where good news would be proclaimed. What I want to do with you now is to explore two significant provisions that God makes for you and for me found in these verses that help us to better understand this idea of good news as it relates to God, as it relates to us, and how we are to relate to one another. And the first comes out of verses 12 and 13. We're going to phrase it like this. That as we consider the advancement of the gospel, literally the good news, Note, first of all, with me, what I'm going to call the open doors. The open doors provided by God. Note the provision. And notice how he begins. He starts off, when I came to Troas. Troas is in modern Turkey. It's in the upper northwest corner. If you've heard the expression, the statement, the phrase, Helen of Troy, Troy and Troas are to be understood in the same breath, really in the same sentence. He says, when I came to Troas, I want you to notice his, his intentionality to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ. Notice that he doesn't merely say, I came to preach the gospel. He says that he came to preach the gospel of Christ. Because as you and I would find when he wrote to the Galatians in chapter 1, there were competing gospels. The question is, what constitutes the authentic gospel as compared to the alternative gospels floating out there? It's got to be validated. And God validated the good news when Jesus died on a cross that three days later he was raised from the dead. And the Gospels describe that event. E.V. Ryu, he was a classical scholar and a translator for a lot of years. and He, he translated Homer into modern English for the Penguin Classics. Get this. He was 60 years old and a lifelong agnostic when the same firm invited him to translate the Gospels. Here's what his son said. It'll be interesting to see what Dad makes of the four Gospels. It'll be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Dad. 
A year later, Ryu came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In a subsequent interview with J.B. Phillips, Ryu said that he, he, he took on the task of translation because of, quote, an intense desire to satisfy myself as to the authenticity of the gospel, unquote. And so he determined that he was going to approach the documents, the New Testament Gospels, as if they were newly discovered in Greek manuscripts. Did you not get the feeling, he was asked, that the entire scope of the material was extraordinarily alive? Ryu agreed and said, I got the deepest feeling. This work changed me. I was confronted with the gospel, the authentic gospel, and came to the conclusion that these words bear the mark and the seal of the Son of Man and God. Now what Paul does at this point is to make absolutely certain we understand that this is not merely phrased the gospel, this is phrased the gospel of Christ. And Christ, as the resurrected one, validates the gospel. So now, what Paul is doing is eliminating alternatives. What you and I have to do on a daily basis, as we walk our own Ignatian way, so to speak, as people who are messengers of good news, as people who stand in hallways or at doors, people that are worried about bad news and then share good news, is to understand that there are competing gospels out there, there are feel-good gospels out there, but the question is, what validates authentic gospel? Jesus does. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, then he adds this next phrase, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. What I want you to notice, it does not read, even though a door was opened by me in the Lord. As Swindoll has occasionally put it, when God's in it, it flows. When God's not in it, it's forced. You ever have that tension between the force and the flow of life? And how does that relate to the decisions you're making right now in life? Houdini, who's a magician and escape artist, Writer says could get off any jail, handcuffs, or straitjacket that he ever tried, except one little jail in the British Isles. Worked at the cell door lock for more than two hours at that terrific speed, which usually unlocked doors in three seconds. But this lock wouldn't spring. And finally, exhausted, he fell against the door. It swung open. It had never been locked. A 
don't assume a closed door is a locked door. Ryu's son would have assumed his father at that stage of life as an agnostic. That closed door was one locked door. But what Ryu needed to be able to process is that it is the authentic gospel authenticated by the one who three days later was raised from the dead that forces us to deal with the authenticity of life. What is real? And that's now what Paul is grappling with here. So here's this man who positions himself in Corinth, and you can read about it in Acts 18, as we've done before. And he's a tent maker, and I keep asking myself the question, with the Ignatian way running through Greece as a tent maker, did he make tents for Roman soldiers? And on that Ignatian way, when messengers from Rome would come announcing another conquest and pronouncing good news to the population base. Would the Apostle Paul go one up on them and talk about the ultimate good news and talk about the ultimate conqueror who produced the ultimate conquest when Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then three days later validates it and gives us an authentic rather than an alternative gospel that we know as as good news. So now it reads, even though a door was opened for me, it doesn't read, even though a door was opened by me. Grace. Not works. God's in it. Flows. Not in it. Ponder whether or not it's forced. But notice the next phrase. Though a door was open for me. In the Lord. I have got a geographic zip code. The zip codes geographically vary in this congregation because of the scope and size of geography. But what you've got to understand is that beyond your geographical zip code, you've got an eternal zip code. If you are in Sheboygan County and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in the Lord in Sheboygan County, you see. And so now you've got to take that eternal zip code and make it work itself out. Know your zip code, both eternally as well as geographically. And he knows, Paul does, the challenges that the Corinthians face and the skepticism that so many have regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he is now dealing with this whole matter of doors. And don't assume that a closed door is a locked door. A door was opened not by me, but for me. But where? In the Lord. Churchill. At a meeting in London, Winston Churchill told this story about his escape from a South African military prison in Pretoria. And he told how after wandering in the region around Pretoria for two or three days, he was getting weary and then sensed that he was to go to a particular door 
one of the houses, lights were twinkling in the valley below. Pick it up. As he writes, although a price had been set on my head, I earnestly hoped that that particular door would open for me. I went to that door, knocked. Man opened the door, asked what I wanted. I am Winston Churchill. Churchill said. Come in. And I underlined in. He said. This is the only setting in which you are safe. Now, the Apostle Paul understands the issues of the hour there. He knows what it means to be in Corinth, but more than a geographical zip code, he wants to know his eternal zip code. He wants to be, and he wants to communicate the fact that he is in the Lord. So when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened not by me, for me, where not merely in Troas, but in the Lord, Notice, now you're into verse 13. He says, my spirit was not at rest. He knows things intellectually that he's not experiencing emotionally. You ever been there? You know that God's sovereign. You know that God's involved in directly controlling the events of life. He's in charge, you know. But how do I take the heart and match it to the head? How do I take the emotional and link it to the intellectual in a way in which I can be a whole person? And don't you love the fact that the Apostle Paul is able to say, despite all this, I'm in the Lord, yet my spirit was not at rest? What I want to say at this point is God is working even when you lack peace. One of the great dangers in America is what I will call, in terms of alternative gospels, an emotional gospel rather than an authentic gospel. Where it's only when life is tranquil that we've authenticated the gospel. But what happens when life's turbulent? When things turn out different than what you and I had prayed for, hoped for, longed for? What happens when we find as though we are not at rest, but at the same time we know that Jesus Christ died and on the third day was raised, you see, from the dead. But then our minds go back to Jesus in Gethsemane. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Checks out his disciples, they're sleeping. And then he said to the disciples, sleep and take your rest. Later. See, the hour's at hand. The Son of Man's betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And so even in the midst of a lack of authenticity, and Judas lacked authenticity, and his statements would lack authenticity, and Jesus is being betrayed, and despite the restlessness within the setting of Gethsemane, not my will, thy will be done, you see. Been having a collision of the wills lately? And so now, he says, my spirit was not at rest. And we ask, but why? And here's his answer. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. Titus had come and Titus had gone. And Titus isn't there. And Paul felt alone. He missed they missed their connection. You ever felt as though you missed your connections in life? God's timing and your timing were out of sync. But let me ask you, just because your timing was out of sync with God's timing, does that invalidate God's timing? Did you really miss your connection? Or did you miss your connection in order to make a new connection? Dr. Ken Hughes understands that. Racing to an airport, O'Hare, Chicago, he missed his connection due to late appointments and so on. So he says he sat down in the airport and picked up a book by C.S. Lewis and began to read and waited for his next flight. man sits down next to him. notices the book and says, C.S. Lewis? And Hughes puts down the book and nods his head, yes. Do you know about him? They begin to talk. Man begins to talk about his life and how things have gone southward, downhill, not working out. Long story short, Ken Hughes leads him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. All because he missed his connection. He would find out years later that that man's family had been praying day in, day out for somebody to talk to him about Jesus. Could it be when you lose your connection that really God is just simply creating a different connection? And so now, here's a disconnect at this point, and we find here that Paul can't find Titus. They have, they have, they're disconnected, so what does he do? Well, he says, I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. I've got to keep on keeping on, as do you and as do I. Okay, now, there's your first provision. As we consider the advancement of the gospel, the good news you know, first of all, the open doors provided by God, don't assume that a closed door is a locked door. Now you're ready for the second provision. It's out of 14 through 17. But secondly, as we consider the advancement of the gospel, note with me the conquering Savior provided by God. And here it comes. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The beginning of verse 14, 
the Apostle Paul says, despite the fact he, he's missed his connections, but thanks be to God. Which tells me that thankfulness is a spiritual discipline. That even when circumstances are not working themselves out according to our plan, thankfulness is still part of God's plan. And when we can demonstrate a sense of disciplined thankfulness, even when circumstances create one disconnect after another, we are better prepared then to discern God's plan as it continuously unfolds in God's time. And now, here I find the Apostle Paul has got to be processing that Ignatian way of how Greece and Rome link as our family members were linking together Rome in 2016 and Greece in 2017. And I'm pondering now what this tour guide, Rainey, says about the Ignatian way and how messengers made their way down that Roman road in order to communicate good news. Look what comes next here. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, there's something that will appear on the screen. Look at this picture. And as it appears on the screen, pull out that insert that's in the bulletin. Maybe you've been jotting some thoughts down. These are words from William Barclay at this point that describes what you and I would call the Roman triumph. And here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is using that Ignatian way that would lead towards Rome where soldiers would converge and there would be this Roman triumph as the conqueror arrives on the scene. Notice what he says. In a triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome in the capital in the following order. First came the state officials in the Senate. Then came the trumpeters. Then were carried the spoils conquered land, models, of, un, of conquered citadels and ships. Then there walked the captive princes, leaders, generals in chains, shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then came the lictors bearing their rods, followed by the musicians with their lyres, and then the priests swinging their censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning in them. After that came the general himself. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. After him rode his family, and finally came the army, wearing all their decorations and shouting, Lo, triumpha, their cry of triumph. What the Apostle Paul is now saying is that when we talk about the gospel of Christ, the authentic gospel, we are talking about the triumph of Christ. And so now, here in this military post in Corinth, where soldiers were making their way around the streets, and I asked myself the question where their, he as a tent maker was actually making tents for these soldiers. Did a thought find itself into his mindset that allowed him now to talk about what was known in that time period as the Roman triumph that allows him to write these words as now we go back to the text on the screen. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us where, how, 
in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so as the secular Roman priests allowed for this fragrance, this incense, to start to permeate the air as people lined in the streets to watch the conqueror, is Apostle Paul saying there is a greater conqueror to consider here than the Roman conqueror? Could it be that three days later the one who was raised from the dead should be viewed as the one who experiences more than a Roman triumph but the ultimate global triumph found in what he has achieved at the cross? He says, you and I are here to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And now I smile as I draw a line back to the fact that he lacked rest in 13. Because the word fragrance is an interesting word that he chose. It's a word that was related in the Old Testament Hebrew by the same word in the Greek Old Testament, which related to the word rest. For example, in the burnt offerings, we read that when the sacrifice was made and the smoke went up, it went up toward heaven. God smelled the fragrance, and we are allowed to understand he was at rest. Sacrifice made. How does the Apostle Paul deal with the lack of emotional rest found in verse 13? With his thorough understanding of the historical accomplishment of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, cross and resurrection, death and resurrection, found in verse 14 into 15. So we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, he's saying, don't just simply put yourself among believers and be an aroma there only. No, this is an aroma that is to permeate both believer and unbeliever simultaneously with the good news of Jesus. He's paid the penalty. He's been raised from the dead. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so the one who's been conquered and now he's in chains and he's making his way down the Roman road towards the arch of Titus, that aroma is the aroma of death but to the conquering soldiers who smell the aroma. It's the aroma, you see, of life. And then I think about that because when we stood in the Roman Forum in 2016, at the Via Sacra, at the top of the, is the Arch of Titus. It's built in memory of the emperor's death, in memory of his conquest of Jerusalem, And inside the arch is a picture of the emperor on his triumphal chariot and the procession of Jewish prisoners carrying a seven-branched candelabrum. And what Paul is saying here, we have got a global eternal conqueror who supersedes a Roman triumph. And you and I, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we offer then this aroma of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The story was told when Napoleon was sweeping the continent. General Messina suddenly appeared at the heights above the town of Feldkirk. 18,000 people. It was the Lord's Day. The city was surrounded. 
Town Council is called hastily together to decide what to do. It looks like defeat. The pastor appears in the council and says, my brothers, it's the Lord's day. We're not going to win on our own strength. Let's turn to God, ring the bells, hold our services, and leave this to God. They did. They agreed. The bells rang out. And when the French heard the sudden clanging of the joy bells, Walter Boxendale then tells us, with surprise and alarm, they concluded that the Austrian army had arrived to relieve them, the place. Messina suddenly broke up his camp, gave the order to march, and before the bells had ceased ringing, the French soldiers had dispersed and retreated. And when I read that and pondered that, here I saw the significance of what God is saying here about the triumphant work of Jesus Christ. And so he adds to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life, and then poses this question, who is sufficient for these things? Two weeks ago on a weekend, not only was I attending my father's funeral, God in his sovereign purposes had me officiating my father's funeral. Uh, the two pastors that were most likely to officiate were out of the area. Now, as we got closer and closer to that hour, my sister, she looks at me and she simply asks one of those classic questions she asks when, when somebody's experienced loss, how are you doing? And I smiled and I looked at my sister and I said, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God said, my grace is sufficient. For you see, the question on the screen is, who is sufficient for these things? Paul will eventually answer in chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient. Over and over again, all I could hear in my mind was, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Now, I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what you're experiencing this morning. But when you have to grapple with that question, who is sufficient for these things? Paul will eventually answer, my grace, God's grace, is sufficient. So we stand in a doorway and the hospitalist looks at the patient. Good news, she says. I'm not sure what else they heard, but as she left, I smile and I say to myself, that was sufficient. Let's stand together.
no matter what anybody in this service and the prior services is facing right now in life, when you take us to the cross, and then when we explore the empty tomb, we realize that we can't go through life based upon our self-sufficiency. We turn to the one who one-ups the Roman triumph, the eternal conqueror, Jesus Christ. And we realize the validity of the words, my grace is sufficient. And so, Father, no matter what it is we faced, including the ultimate issues of life and death, we turn to the one who has conquered death through resurrection. And we find it's not self-sufficiency, it's God's sufficiency. And so I pray now that each and every one here recognizes that and applies it to their own point of need. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.